0: Michelle Rempel-Garner is the conservative member for Calgary Nose Hill. She's also the uh, health critic for the party. And uh, there's been a battle between uh, Ms. Rempel-Garner and the uh, health minister. We'll talk about that. Also, the the, um, motion that uh, Michelle has brought before Parliament, which is getting some interesting response. Michelle, thank you very much for coming on the show. And what's what's the situation now between you and the health minister? There's been uh, talk about the information commissioner being involved.
2: Look, at the end of the day, what we all want here is a better response to COVID-19. You know, we're seeing cases rise across the country. We're seeing long lines for tests. And in order for us to come up with that plan, we have to be able to scrutinize what's been going right and what's been going wrong. So for me, what we've been trying to do this week is compel that information of the government, given that they haven't been transparent with Parliament to date. What you refer to is the fact that The health minister kind of scoffed at this. She said, you know, no one's asking for this type of information, which is just so ridiculous. And, um, you know, she was rightly held to task by the uh, information commissioner this week, a lot of other journalists like yourself. And I'm cautiously optimistic that on Monday, when this uh, motion comes before the House of Commons, it is going to pass.
0: Well, let's talk about this. The motion which calls on the government to deliver to the House Health uh, Committee, records on many COVID pandemic-related issues involving the government. So what are you asking for, and what do you say to companies and the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Group, uh, which engaged with the Trudeau government to produce PPEs and other COVID-related devices and pharmaceuticals? They're now saying uh, they're concerned confidential business information may go public if your motion passes.
2: You know, that's just bunk. I think that's liberal spin. I think liberals are trying to, you know, stoke a lot of concern that's just unfounded. The motion itself, it's a routine motion. It has exemptions for national security issues, personal information. There's actually specific exemptions around certain types of commercial sensitivities. It's it's just standard, like without getting into sort of like the, the technicalities of it, standard parliamentary procedure. But taxpayers have the right to know where their money is going, who's getting it, and whether or not we're getting value for that money. So for example The government has purportedly spent over a billion dollars on PPE. Well, where is it? Who got it? What was the criteria used to both purchase it and distribute it? Um, This is information that journalists have been trying to get for several months now, and the government has been stonewalling them. So we're using Parliament to compel that information. And again, if there's no issue, if there's nothing to hide, everything's going to be great. But if there is an issue, then we have a chance to correct that on behalf of Canadians, and that is the function of Parliament.
0: Yeah, we need to know where our money is going. And I know one contract Thanks. in particular concerns the opposition parties a $237 million contract for 10,000 ventilators given to FBI professional grade. What's that about?
2: That is a contract that is allegedly linked to former Liberal MP Frank Bayliss. There's a lot of questions surrounding that contract on whether or not um, it was appropriately awarded. Uh, whether or not there was value for money in that, how it was awarded. Um, These are all, this is the sort of thing that Parliament is designed to scrutinize. But in order to be able to do that, we need to have that type of information, those documents. And this is, you know, part of the reason why we're compelling this information through this motion. We're just saying, look, there's a lot more that we need to do to address the COVID-19 issue. Um, we're, We're obviously, we weren't prepared for the second wave. What went wrong, and how can we move forward? And that's the role of Parliament. We're just doing our job.
0: Yeah, it's really farcical. If I look at how Mr. Trudeau is governing as a leader of a minority Parliament, who had got the lowest popular vote uh, in the in the history of Canada for anyone winning an election, uh, it's farcical the way he's governing. And this whole idea about a federal election—that was just a setup from the word go.
2: At the end of the day, you know, I had somebody, Rory, this week phone me. She's a friend in Montreal, and her parents, uh, they're elderly. They were both infected with COVID from somebody that was supporting them in their homes, uh, not through their fault, just not not enough access to testing. Her mother passed away from it while separated from her father. They were in different hospitals. Her her, 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 Her father, it's difficult for them to see other family members. Like, like those situations are the ones that I want to prevent moving right. forward. There's human faces to this. That's what it boils down to for me. Like, Trudeau okay. needs to understand that. And, okay. you know, so, so this is why we're compelling this motion. We just want to get some answers and move forward, especially before the holiday season when a lot of Canadians are thinking, All right. like, am I going to be able to see my loved one?
0: So what went on this week as far as the... Uh, NDP not supporting the cpc motion for the establishment of an anti-corruption committee different name eventually right and voting with the liberals is concerned where does ndp member of parliament charlie angus consider his role now to be on the parliamentary ethics committee we've talked to charlie uh well three four times now in the last few weeks and uh, i i'm going to tell you i think mr angus has done a great job holding the uh, the liberals to account now there's a lot of talk about what the ndp did this in the last few days and charlie welcome back to the show
1: hey roy i'm glad you're still with us
0: yeah me too it was uh wow. nip it was nip tuck and stent <laughs> wow wow yeah yeah hey what was going on in the house of the people this week charlie what, what happened
1: well roy I've seen a lot of brinkmanship and muchism in Parliament. I'd like to say that you go into that place and you see the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest. And often it really is like uh, being in the cafeteria in grade nine. Uh, And this week we did not rise to our best. Uh, To threaten an election in the midst of the biggest medical potential medical catastrophe in a century, uh, to me, is just shocking that we even had to go this far and this was all about trying to deal with a committee to set up a committee to start to deal with the we issue and then the issue of frank bayless's contract on ppe and other accusations that are being made against the liberals and it was actually new democrats that came forward and said okay you're complaining that all our committees are being held up uh with these investigations we'll set up a separate committee we'll move it all over there Uh, and then it all went off the rails. And the next thing we knew, we had Justin Trudeau telling us that uh, we were going to go to an election if he didn't get his way. So uh, that's what happened, but it's not going to work out for the Liberals the way they think it's going to work out.
0: So what role did your party play? You know the NDP is being accused of folding and doing the Liberals' bidding. I've seen that in emails. I'm not surprising you by saying that. I've
1: had 10,000 emails. From conservatives calling me a liberal rat, and then all the liberals are saying to me, we, "We're sick and tired of you supporting Pierre Polyev, and why aren't you, why aren't you being a good new Democrat?" So, the reality was that we went to the liberals and said, uh, "Let's, if you want to clear up the, you know, the filibustered um, ethics and finance, and what may happen at some of the other committees, we'll set this committee up." So they came back and their proposal was to basically have it run by the Liberals. And we said, like, well, that's a joke. We know we've, we've been there with the Jody wilson Rabel investigation. You'll shut it down. The Conservatives brought their motion, the anti-corruption motion, and we knew they had definitely overplayed their hand on this and the government was, wasn't going to support them. So we went back to the Liberals and said, listen, give us an opposition chair uh, and we'll set it up the way the Ethics Committee is set up. They said, absolutely not. We went back to them again and said, How's this? Let us have the committee vote on the chair. That way there's a lot of, you know, really good, credible conservative uh, opposition chairs that we could have that are not going to turn this into a, a witch hunt. And it'll be a fair process. And they were I haven't said this anywhere else, Roy, but they were considering this until they realized that the conservatives were going to blink because they knew the conservatives did not want to push an election on that vote and they just shut everything down. So for us, there was no way we were going to go to an election on this. It would have been, I think, the height of irresponsibility. But what the conservatives, liberals don't get is I'm going back to my own committee with a conservative chair on Monday and we're just gonna continue our work. So we didn't get any further ahead. They, they burnt a lot of bridges, but the investigation, as far as I'm concerned, it continues and it's going to continue till we get some answers. <laughs>
0: Okay, let me v- move on to something else here, Charlie. Your party, uh, the federal NDP, and the Assembly of First Nations have both called on the Prime Minister to remove Brenda Lucky as Commissioner of the RCMP. You're the Indigenous and Northern Affairs critic for the NDP, and your writing is Timmins James Bay, so you know the issues of First Nation communities. Why does the RCMP Commissioner Lucky have to go?
1: I, I think we were all really, really shocked at the violence Uh, that happened in Nova Scotia, Um, very, very frightening. And uh, we remember just a few years ago, there was a standoff in New Brunswick uh, over uh, fracking at Elsa Pogtog. And the RCMP came in, they had heavy weapons, they had sniper crews. Uh, It was very, very confrontational. And in this situation, nothing was done to protect uh, businesses. Uh, People were threatened, there was violence. And I think the, the concern is, is that the RCMP were not in a, should have been in a position to lessen the violence and, and impose some kind of, uh, protection and that didn't happen. Uh, I've had, uh, Commissioner Leckie before, so I think she's a, I, I think she's, uh, I think she's very sincere. I think she's out of her depth on this. Uh, On a lot of the stuff that's happening nationally and the there's certainly a lot of bad blood in Nova Scotia We need to dial it down and one thing we got to do is make sure that we're not having uh, That kind of violence we saw because violence will create more violence and that's what we do not need right now
0: You know that mr. Trudeau has said uh, That the commissioner is not going anywhere that he's going to work with her even though his Indigenous Affairs Minister, Mark Miller, has stated that, and particularly over the Mi'kmaq lobster fishing rights issue, that Indigenous people, quote, have been let down by the police. So do you see the the Prime Minister and his Indigenous Affairs Minister at, at odds with each other?
1: Well, I think it's an interesting situation to watch. Uh, I, I mean... I, I like Mark Miller as a minister. He says all the right things. He just never seems to follow through. I mean, I've got a community in Northwestern Ontario that's being evacuated right now in the middle of a pandemic because they don't have they don't have any running water, and Minister Miller saying nice things, but like, come on, where the hell are you, people? Um, so, um, I, I think we need to find a way to dial this back. In Nova Scotia, what happened, I think, shocked us all, and it could have gotten worse. Um, and we need, I think, also the RCMP really needs to be able to 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 be a, a really strong player in this. And I'll tell you, Roy, I've I've negotiated on some of these blockades, and I've negotiated with both RCMP and OPP. And uh, and the OPP, I've seen them play really, really careful diplomacy at times to de-escalate. So uh, that didn't happen. So it's a conversation that's ongoing, and uh, we'll see where it goes. But I'm hoping that we're not going to see any more violence. Uh, in Nova Scotia. And we're going to work this
0: out. Yeah, I hope hope so as well, Charlie. And and you mentioned uh, you have a community within your riding, First Nations community, that's being evacuated in the middle of a pandemic because of water concerns. Now, Mr. Trudeau has said, as you know, he set March 2021 as the date for boil water advisories to be ended at First Nations communities. He's now hedging and saying that will take place quote as soon as possible end quote and appears to be pointing of the pandemic for the reason for any delay. Is it your sense Justin Trudeau is unjustifiably breaking her commitment to Indigenous peoples and First Nations communities?
3: Well, he, uh, he
1: could never really been serious. We said this to them from the beginning. The issues on of water on reserves um, they always and you know Prime Minister Harper put a lot of money into water too. They always under They they always uh, underestimate what it's really going to cost. Uh, We deal with all kinds of contractors. I don't even know where some of these guys come from. Um, The government, in the case of this community in Iskandiga, I've seen this a thousand times. They build a big plant that doesn't meet the needs of the community, but then they don't fix the basic pipes. The sewage lifts don't work. Um, We have, you know, so we're doing band-aids on the water plants and sewage plants and they fail uh and the contractors have to keep coming back to fix things that should have been done right in the first place the money adds up the government moves on to the next community and miscandiga the community we're talking about 25 years they've gone without clean water how is that possible in canada when you know we went into kandahar we had running water for our soldiers in, in weeks, and in days, like it, this was a priority, it got done. In Niskanthika, the government has been sitting back, it's been 25 years of patchwork and band-aids, and we still don't have a coherent plan.
0: 20 years ago today, I entered St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton, where during an angiogram, a 99% blockage of my left anterior descending artery was discovered, AKA the Widowmaker. I'd never even heard of a left anterior descending artery before that. The blockage was angioplasted and uh, stented to zero percent blockage, and much to the surprise of some doctors when they first hear it, years later all remains well with me. I was completely checked out about a year ago, after I had uh, just before I had a, a hernia surgery. I'm disgustingly healthy most of the time and uh, dr douglas holder dr doug holder was the cardiologist who performed my angiogram and angioplasty and stent insertion dr holder is professor emeritus at mcmaster university he initiated the angioplasty program at hamilton general hospital and uh, interesting is that um the uh, hamilton general hospital is, since 1976 has been part of the growth of ca- cardiovascular services in the city and now the leading volume center in Ontario. Dr. Holder is now retired, enjoying life after medicine. Doug, I don't know, how do you enjoy life after medicine?
3: (laughs) Well, it it helps to have uh, grandchildren, and uh, you sort of let your uh, hobbies take over.
0: Yeah. Look, 20 years later, 20 years to the day later, thank you for what you did for me. Thank you so much.
3: Well, it's a pleasure, and uh, it's great to hear your... Iconic voice in the airwaves still.
0: So, well, thank you. I don't you to I don't expect you to remember my specific situation to the detail, but I do know whenever I mention to a doctor over the years, and I just said this, that my LAD was ninety nine percent blocked. There's usually a sharp intake of breath, mm. and once in a while I hear, and you're still here, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Dr. Holder. What what is the LAD, and how pivotal is the artery to survival? Why am I still here, twenty years later, no blockages, no issues, and again, I was checked thoroughly prior to that surgery last year.
3: Yeah, well, the LAD, left anterior descending, is uh, one of the three major arteries that f- feeds the heart, and it's it's uh, responsible for usually for a large amount of muscle, so. Uh, an occlusion or a blockage, total blockage of that's so, uh, a serious event uh, and uh, hence uh, very important to, to have it functioning.
0: So how has angioplasty changed the landscape for heart procedures? I in my editorial I, I mentioned that my dad died at 40. Uh, my uncle at forty-two, so I was genetically predisposed to the situation. How has uh, well, let's start with angiograms and angioplasties and stents. How how have they changed the landscape for 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 people generally?
3: Well, it's um, I would say that for the case of an acute heart attack, um, it, it has really uh, altered things uh, tremendously. When I was a resident, we used to uh, treat patients with acute heart attack uh, with bed rest, and uh, often the, morbid- the morbidity was overcoming the effects of prolonged bed rest, uh, whereas now uh, the, the way it's approached is uh, to open the artery as soon as possible after it blocks, and uh, if one's successful doing that with uh, the current tools and uh, stents, then uh, Flow is reestablished, and uh, so now a heart attack may simply be a three- to four-day admission. Um, and it, it is important, as you're emphasizing, that people not delay uh, when they're troubled with uh, chest, chest discomfort. Um, they should call 911. Paramedics uh, will come. They'll do an ECG at home. And if the characteristic changes of heart attack are there, then they get in touch with the team, and uh, often the ECG is transmitted ahead ahead of the patient, and uh, uh, the paramedics will bring the patient in Hamilton anyway, bring them directly to the uh, cardiac cath lab, not through the emergency department, and the uh, team will go to work, and usually within half an hour, uh, the uh, arteries opened up and flows reestablished, and then they... They spend time uh, recuperating in our coronary unit over the next couple of days and sort of get set on on uh, medical therapy to minimize atheroma and so on.
0: It's really amazing how far... I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: Yeah, so so there's been quite a change and, uh, and then there will be patients where it's not quite as straightforward and they may go to the emergency room for evaluation at, before uh, coming to the cath lab, but... Uh, Uh, one of my colleagues has just done a survey and uh, apparently the uh, frequency of this is down about 30% across the province. So there are people that are ignoring uh, the symptoms of heart attack and uh, so anything that can be done to encourage them to make the call uh, is is important.
0: Could be life and death.
3: Could be, sure, yeah.
0: You know, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times more than me, but over the last couple of days since I wrote that editorial and I've been tweeting on it, I've received emails and, and uh, Twitter questions. What are the symptoms? What are the symptoms you felt? It's not about my symptoms. It's about your symptoms, right? I mean, that's that's what it's about. What, what are the most prevalent symptoms people should be aware of?
3: Well, uh, there is a wide variation. so. But characteristically, it's a sensation of pressure, fullness, tightness uh, in the chest that is not altered in any way by position uh, that may radiate up into the neck, teeth, jaw, sometimes through to the back, sometimes to the shoulder and arm, and uh, often associated with uh, sweating and sometimes a feeling of impending doom. uh, at other times, it may be a little more subtle, uh, but uh, that fundamentally, that's what people should be watching for. Okay.
0: One more question for you, and I've seen this quite a few times in email over the last 24 hours. How is the decision made to engage open heart surgery versus angioplasty and stent? Uh,
3: if the degree of obstruction uh, or blockage in the artery is total and uh, can't really be worked through with uh, guide wires and uh, so on, Then uh, and or if it is multi-vessel, like in, in many places, three, four areas of occlusion, uh, if it may involve the very main left artery. So these are all things that would uh, uh, sort of make a person move more towards surgery
0: well i can't thank you enough for what you did for me uh 20 years ago i on this day i was a little nervous i went to work that morning i was on the air from nine to noon i figured if i was at home or <laughs> uh, or at work it didn't really make much difference <laughs> and then i had a good friend of mine paul tipple who's the news uh, morning news anchor at chml radio in hamilton he drove me to the hospital and i said you've got 10 minutes go <laughs> he got me there in time. So thank you so much for what you did for me, uh, Doug. I will always be uh, grateful and, and the message to everyone across this province is, and across the country is, if you're feeling like there's something wrong with you, get it checked out and get it checked out now.
3: When and do find out. That's right.
0: Another pandemic which may be descending on us when this one is gone or under control finally. The mental health pandemic. After the lockdowns, the job losses, the economic collapse, complete uprooting of everyday life and relationships, what will the result be? Residual stress, depression, financial pressure, learning how we re-engage with our world, our families, our friends, and our lives. Not easy. Mark Hennick is a mental health strategist. His TED talk about attempting suicide and being saved at 15 years of age by a stranger is one of the most watched in the world. It's been watched millions of times. Mr. Hennick is also National Director of Strategic Initiatives for the Canadian Mental Health Association. He served as national spokesperson for the Canada-wide Faces of Mental Illness campaign. His book and podcast are so-called Normal, and he's CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting in Toronto. Mr. Hennick, thank you very much for taking the time. Good to talk to you. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me. So would you please share with us, I I don't know what I'm talking about when I read those particular words. I know what they are. I can put them together, but I don't know the real meaning of it. What's the impact of the pandemic on long-term mental health of our national population?
4: You know, I've been predicting since March, really, that we were looking down the barrel of what I've been calling an echo pandemic. That is to say, a pandemic after the pandemic. Uh, And I think, you know what, we're not even looking uh, toward it anymore. I think we're already in it. I think we're already seeing increasing rates of anxiety, of depression, even of suicide, uh, and we need to get a handle on this. It's not like we didn't see it coming. Mental health advocates have been uh, predicting it now for months. So, uh, how does
0: this how does this develop in, in a person? You know, we, we probably most of us feel like, well, we're handling it, we're taking care of it. And we don't like to be in our homes all the time, and don't tell me I have to go back into my house. You've heard all of these things before, but how does this develop in our systems to the point that it? does become the problem that you've described.
4: You know, my primary concern when this all started was around people who were already at risk for mental illnesses. That is, people who perhaps had a family member, a close family member who had a mental illness, uh, who had trauma uh, in their childhood or at some point in their life, uh, or who didn't have ready access to services, as so many people don't. But what we've actually been seeing unfold uh, through the research has been that people who are already at risk have been indeed uh, seeing increasing rates of diagnoses. But also people who have never had a diagnosis of a mental illness before. People who have never had depression before, who perhaps weren't at risk, uh, who are now getting diagnosed as well. And I think what we're seeing here is that these prolonged months of isolation, uh, of uh, extraordinary change, that people aren't uh, adapting as well as they thought. Uh, You know, people are uh, getting used to it. Some people are getting used to it and are finding new ways of being. But some people are being left behind. Some people are getting stuck. And those are the people that we're most concerned about, the people who didn't have the coping mechanisms coming into it. And maybe they didn't realize that they didn't have the coping mechanisms coming into it.
0: What do we need to do?
4: Well, first and foremost, we need to improve the mental health system in Canada. I think uh, the mental health care system has, uh, you know, Senator Michael Kirby used to call it the poor second cousin of the health care system. Even that, I think, is generous. I think that the system was never really built well to begin with. Uh, so we need to take a fundamental relook at how we're offering mental health uh, mental health care in Canada, and that means opening the doors to allowing more service providers to actually helping people. You know, we have psych- psychologists and social workers and occupational therapists. Uh, psychotherapists just waiting on the sidelines to help highly trained individuals who are waiting on the sidelines because people can't afford them. We don't have a universal healthcare system in Canada. We have a universal medical care system, and that needs to change.
0: What happened to you?
4: <laughs> That's a long story, but, you know, it's one that I tell in my uh, my book, my upcoming book, so-called normal. Uh, and I was diagnosed with depression at 12 years old uh, following a suicide attempt. Now, you know, people don't just uh, attempt suicide, whether at 12 years old or or any other age, uh, for no reason. I think I'd been struggling much longer than that. Um, But I, I attempted for the first time at 12 years old. I attempted more than half a dozen times over the next several years, in and out of hospital for years. And I think by the end, or at least what I thought was the end, Uh, I was just another hopeless case, just a frequent flyer who who was doomed to be mentally ill for the rest of my life. At least that's how I characterized it at the time. And if it wasn't for a complete stranger who pulled me off a bridge late one night in the middle of a suicide attempt, I never would have had the opportunity to share my experience and to, to tell people that there's another side to the mountain, that you actually not only can you recover, but that recovery is expected. Recovery is likely when people get the help that they need. The tragedy is that people aren't getting the help that they need, and and that needs to change.
0: Yeah, uh, when I read, for example, that uh, your TED talk about attempting suicide and being saved at 15 years of age by that stranger is one of the most watched in the world. It's been watched millions of times. That speaks about the depth of this issue, the depth of the uh, of the of the concern we should have and are we not we're not going to get out of this without help are we no
4: i don't think we are and you know it, it was it was advocacy that saved my life ultimately i think i was i was in high school when i first wanted to speak about those stories that i talked about in the ted talk uh, and i was told at the time that you can't talk about suicide you know and there's still this fear in media especially um, partially justified that if you talk about suicide that it gives people the idea to go out and do it and we know that that's just not true that people want to talk about hard things, including suicide. Uh, And in fact, when we talk about things like this in a safe and responsible way, it gives other people the, the permission to share their story, too. So I think that we need to be talking about, especially in the context of the pandemic, Uh, people who are having increasing stress and depression and thoughts of suicide and all kinds of other difficult things, because it's only when we know about them that we can actually start to do something about them. Silence doesn't solve anything.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend.